This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Melvin Rogers and Jack Turner, and they're going to talk to me about the African American political thought, a collection, a collected history. This is edited by them, and it is a magisterial product. It is amazing, and I recommend it to anybody who has any interest in any kind of political thought. Um, but I'm going to let Jack and Melvin talk to us a little bit about how they came to this project um, and where they are situated themselves. Welcome to the podcast, Melvin and Jack. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you both here, and I'd love to hear a little bit about each of you and how you came to this project. Well, this this book is very much a product of friendship. Uh, Melvin and I uh, were undergraduates together at Amherst College in the late 1990s, and we, in fact, met in a seminar taught by Robert Gooding Williams, who's one of the contributors to this book. Uh, The seminar was on philosophy, race, and racism. And uh, Melvin and I became very fast friends. We both had interests in political theory. Uh, We both had interests in African-American history. And, you know, we spent a lot of time conversing in that class and at various places, you know, on the Amherst College campus. And we also had a number of common mentors. Uh, I think we are both very much shaped by uh, the Department of Black Studies at Amherst at that time, you know, which had folks like David Blight teaching in it, uh, Bob Gooding Williams, of course, and um, Jeffrey Ferguson. Um, and Jeffrey Ferguson, you know, he taught a course called Mongrel America. Um, I, I took it, I believe, in the fall of 96, and Melvin took it in the fall of 97. And, uh, and Jeff was a big influence on both of us. Uh, and he really sort of taught us to see not just black history, but an African-American history, but, but American history as, um, well, in Jeff's words, a mongrel creation uh, out of the encounter of a different sets of peoples. And, um, and so, you know, partly as a result of his influence on that and, uh, and of the way in which he sort of put us in touch with kind of the, the, the Nathan Huggins approach to American history, we developed a longstanding interest in African-American political thought. And when it, it got to be around, you know, when we were toward the end of grad school, we came up with the idea of um, trying to put together a volume that would showcase the breadth and heterogeneity of African-American political thought, um, something along the lines of Strauss and uh, Cropsey's history of political philosophy. We started working in earnest on it in 2011, and uh, we now are 
finished with it 10 years later. Melvin? Yeah, so I think uh, Chip narrates that story very well. Um, you know, we, after after Amherst, we um, went off to uh, graduate school um, with him ultimately landing at Princeton Me uh, at Yale. And, you know, toward the end, we sort of reconnected uh, in, in part because um, there was this sort of profound and deep sense that um, there uh, had been up to that point a missed opportunity to uh, really sort of showcase and um, in some ways catalog the sort of substantive political philosophical contributions of African-American thinkers. Um, And I don't think that I would have embarked on this project with anyone else. Um, uh, um, And that that's sort of a testament to uh, our friendship. Um, but, but, But it was our attempt in some ways, both to catalog that tradition to do right by the tradition that, um, that we both care so much about, uh, and in some ways offer up an important intellectual gift uh, for the discipline of uh, of political theory. And and certainly, as I was reading through this book, I did have recollections of holding the Strauss-Cropsey reader in my hands as well, and thinking it was coming from the University of Chicago Press. And so um, I I plan to use it as I did that text as well. Um, and so I, I'm curious to know um, a little bit about the sort of history of this project beyond how you both have talked about its, its need that it was missing, um, but how you pulled it together um, because it has so many contributors. Um, and as you note, it took you a decade <laughs> to produce. Um, how did you... Um, sort of pull this project together and what was the thinking behind it at that in that context? Chip, you want to begin since we start the first conference um, at Washington? Sure, yeah. I mean, well, we, um, you know, as I said, we, we sort of came up with the idea in 2007 and said, okay, let's get our first books done and then we'll turn to this. And we started, started to turn to this after, you know, Melvin got his book done first. Um, and then, once I finally finished mine, um, we, we turned to it in earnest in um, 2011. And we started off by, you know, recruiting about half the contributors. We developed a proposal for Chicago Press. You know, we got some feedback on that proposal. And then we recruited the other half in light of the feedback. Then we had two different conferences, um, one at University of Washington in 2014 uh, another University of California, Los Angeles, in 2015, and then o- over the years that it followed, it was a, really a matter of um, of going through a pretty intensive editing process. And um, there were a couple times where we had contributors drop out, then needed to be replaced, um, but we just had to sort of stick with it and um, keep going. And of course, you know, a project like this you know, it's not finished until the last chapter is finished. And um, so that's one of the reasons why it, it took 10 years to produce. And, you know, I must say here on this, right, because this kind of project is a, a product of friendship, a, a, an attempt to offer up an intellectual gift to uh, to our discipline. Um, but, but, but of course, um, it is also a project of perseverance. Uh, 
And there are moments in which a project like this is uh, born of a kind of struggle, and there are moments of deep and profound doubt about whether or not you will reach the finish line. I must say, I mean, Chip, I just have to say, I was more often than not the one doubting. Um, And Chip was the one who would say, no, 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 let's stay the course. Um, We can pull this back together. We can replace this. We can fix this. And, And it was often the case, as you know, because we now have the book, I sort of trusted him uh, on this. And, you know, we were able to um, uh, bring the project ultimately to uh, fruition. But this is the kind of project really um, that, uh, that that is partly one of, of perseverance, steadied by the ideal of it, right? The the ideal of African American political thought, a collected history, right? Right between between two pages, right, or two, two covers, rather. And and I think that also is an amazing testament to the relationship that the two of you have had in in working together. That you are still talking to each other, and <laughs> you can also ta- talk about how you sort of guided each other through those periods of doubt. And I certainly understand that, having co-authored as well. Um, it's it has its challenges. Um, and so one of the things that you do in the introduction to the book, which you both wrote together and is a beautifully written introduction, um, is to lay out the different approaches to African-American thinking. Um, and it's drawing, as you note, on a host of different disciplines. Can you broadly sketch out um, the different approaches that you are sort of contextualizing these many chapters in? Um, and then we can go through talking about them one at a time. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, first off, one of the things that we do in the introduction, um, we first off, you know, we have to acknowledge we're standing on many people's shoulders, um, that there have been lots of people doing yeoman's work in African-American political thought academically for, you know, more than a quarter century. Leonard Harris, Bernard Boxall, Beverly Guy Sheftel, Patricia Hill Collins, the list goes on, and everyone is noted uh, in the introduction. Um, but we also, I mean, the first thing sort of stuff that we do after sort of notice, you know, trying to sort of lay out what's the groundwork of this is, first off, we need to map African-American political thought geographically. And we map it as a North Atlantic intellectual configuration at the intersection of Western, American, and Africana political thought. Those are mutually constitutive fields but each has a different center of gravity. And I, even though I don't, we, we uh, Melvin and I did not use the term North Atlantic configuration, I really think that, you know, as I've thought more about it, um, you know, African-American political thought is, that's where it's really sort of centered in. It's, 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 it's centered in encounter, especially as Paul Gilroy um, expounds it in the Black Atlantic. Um, then in term, then we move, after we sort of doing that, we sort of situate, you know, really an interpretive debate that's happened, I think, in political science over the past uh, 20 years or so. Um, and I, I, we mapped the um, we mapped the interpretive debate as being really between um, what we could call the, the Dawson School, uh, taking after Michael Dawson's uh, 2001 book, Black Visions, and the Gooding Williams School, uh, taking after the uh, now Columbia University political theorist, uh, or political philosopher, social and political philosopher, Robert Gooding Williams. The Dawson approach, which we have great admiration for, 
it focuses on the ways in which black political thought is very much a product of social movements. It focuses on the way in which black political thought is very much um, a, the collective creation of uh, black actors in politics. And it's often configured as a set of ideologies. You know, Dawson identifies six major ideologies, black nationalism, black Marxism, black feminism, black liberalism, of which there are uh, three different types, uh, radical egalitarianism, black conservatism, and um, and uh, reform liberalism, I believe, is the third variety of black liberalism. Um, and we this has a lot of value because this particular configuration of it um, shows us how black political thought is attached to social movements and is attached to larger historical movements. The Gooding Williams approach, however, focuses on individual thinkers. And part of what Bob's intervention there was to say that the complexity of the individual thinkers exceeds the mapping of black ideologies. And so we have to take, pay more attention to the particularity. And so even though I think this book stands on the shoulders on both the Dawson approach and the Gooding Williams approach, we sort of lean in the direction of the Gooding Williams approach. And we actually argue that uh, there needs to be more study of intellectual particularity of the, the granular features of black political thinkers. No, I think that's right. I mean, um, uh, you know, p- much of what, you know, the introduction is, is doing uh, on the one hand is trying to sort of locate uh, African-American uh, political, political thought and in some sense lay out a, a sort of robust justification for why it is we spend, um, why we've decided to organize the book around um, uh, individual figures. Um, in some sense, it's sort of an invitation to others to go back to those individual figures, um, uh, put these views that we've sort of laid out, these interpretations to the test. Um, might you discover more ways of thinking about these uh, figures? But of course, we also want to say in the introduction that once we sort of pay close attention to these figures, we discover that they offer substantive contributions to how we understand uh, how we understand democracy. Um, it, right? It, 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 in one sense, um, democracy is the sort of moral proposition. I think we can put it this way, the moral proposition that ordinary people really can be left to their own devices to engage in self-governance. And they can be left to their own devices without needing to bow to kings or bosses. And that moral proposition often displays itself uh, in the tradition of democratic theorizing in the importance that we uh, accord the franchise, the ability to vote. I mean, obviously, we're grappling with that right now. It's under assault. Uh, the importance we attach to uh, deliberation and discussion as a means for sort of working out our disagreements. And I suppose uh, sort of the way in which we use those first two, the franchise and deliberation, really to guard against uh, social and economic forces that would threaten our freedom, that would threaten us with, uh, uh, with domination. And all three of these features, the right to vote, the importance of deliberation, and the sort of aversion and resistance, I would say, to domination, form central parts of African-American political uh, political thought. And one of the things that we wanted to sort of to sort of showcase here is that as much as African-American thinkers are very much concerned about the franchise, 
they also are very clear that the meaning of democracy extends beyond formal processes of voting. I mean, there's no way, for example, to read chapters two on David Walker or uh, chapters eight on Anna Julia Cooper or chapters 24 on uh, Toni Morrison and not see that for them democracy is a cultural enterprise and that the franchise, for example, and our defense of it requires a culture in which we are rightly oriented uh, to each, a culture in which we sort of in which we sort of care and in which care and concern sort of figure prominently. And building up, of course, a healthy democratic culture for many in the book requires richer ways of talking to each other, different resources that might enrich our sort of discursive and conversational encounters. So whether it's the deployment of religious claims, the sort of intense display of emotions as part of communicating the gravity of one's grievances, think, for example, of uh, Ida, B., Ida B. Wells, Naomi Marikawa's chapter on Ida B. Wells, um, or, 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 or whether it is the performance of protests via marching and sit-ins, all of these have worked as reasons for organizing political society one way rather than another. Uh, and all of these have functioned as ways of speaking to the public, even in cases when uh, what, one was being, what was being used was one's very body. And I think that this last point, uh, which relates to domination, uh, is the ways in which this tradition has ha, ha, sort of exposes or reveals the kind of radical vulnerability that Black people have experienced in this country that marks them off from their, in this case, their white, their white counterparts. And, and, and so then the so then the tradition says to us, what does it mean to theorize, to philosophize, right, um, to think about political engagement from that perspective of radical vulnerability? Right. Um, and, and so all three of these elements sort of add to fill out, expand how we think about uh, modes of uh, theorizing and engaging in uh, in democratic politics. And the the last sort of reconception that you talk about in the in the introduction brings us back to Socrates. Um, and, uh, and this discussion of the ugly truth teller. Um, and so I would love for each or both of you to talk a little bit about how you loop back to classical discussions from ancient Athens. You know, I appreciate that question. You know, when we decided to sort of conclude the chapter, uh, on this sort of Socratic moment, um, the Socratic question. It wasn't an attempt, we weren't interested in trying to sort of authorize the voice of the thinkers that were now about to follow, right? Or, or that follow in the volume. It was an attempt to sort of get the readers um, uh, uh, to see the ways in which the traditions take up um, a central uh, sort of central question that is taken to animate the the sort of beginnings of Western, right, Western uh, uh, political philosophy. And so what we wanted to sort of highlight is that, you know, when you go back to the apology, Plato's apology, where he sort of recounts the sort of trial and death of, uh, uh, of Socrates, when you go back to that, I mean, the very beginning of the apology, you know, Socrates basically tells you, look, what I'm going to say to you is going to be messy, you know, uh, I'm going to meander. Um, and what, you know, what these folks will tell you will be adorned. It will be pretty. They are lying. I am telling you the truth. And the question, of course, is 
you know, must truth be beautiful before the democratic masses accept it? And it seems to me that no tradition, let let me not be so grand, it seems to me that African-American political thought is one of the traditions that takes this point to heart and says that the measure of democracy is its ability to deal with its ugly truths. I mean, this is what it puts to uh, uh, this is what it puts to the American nation state, right? Um, and then one wonders, well, why is it that they constantly African Americans are in the business of of sort of putting these ugly truths to their counterparts who seem uh, sort of not to be interested in having them in the United States at all, who seem to sort of see them as beyond the boundaries of, of proper care and concern. And of course, this goes back to the Socratic point. Why is, why is Socrates doing it? Well, it's born of a kind of civic love. I mean, Socrates says, look, I will question uh, all those you bring before me, but especially you, because you are closer to me like Ken. I mean, this is precisely what, right? African-Americans have uh, in have engaged in, right? Um, this is why Baldwin comes back. He goes away, but he has to come back because you are closer to me like Ken, right? I mean, and this is, of course, why when people read Baldwin, they always want to put him in the Socratic framework, right? Because, because this is sort of the framework in which he stands, even as he's going to engage in a sort of sophisticated analysis um, that cannot be reducible uh, uh, to, 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 to Socrates. And that marks, of course, his, uh, uh, his, his originality. And of course, that question uh, or that sense that you are close to me like Ken uh, has, brought, has, has both brought some back, um, Baldwin, and have sent uh, some away lamenting Right, lamenting this, right, what this society, uh, right, has become. Right, um, we think of Du Bois, someone like Du Bois, wishing black people well, and simultaneously saying, "But no, um, uh, that you cannot win." And that that is both, you know, that's the lament. Um, so even as he goes away, he's still looking back. Right, um, Chip, you want to add something on this? Yeah, I do, just because, I mean, first off, I want to say that the, the concluding section on the Socratic question, I mean, this is very much a co-authored introduction, but I do think it's important to note that this, is, this section is really Melvin's inspiration. Um, and it's quite mo- it's quite moving to me. I also think it's very um, subversive. It's a subversive section, and the last paragraph is very subversive, and it bears repeated rereading. Um we, one of the things that's interesting is when we're circulating the, we circulated it to a number of our contributors um, to, to say, to, to, to basically, I mean, to get feedback, but also to do a gut check to like, does this sound right to you? And um, we, had, we, and our contributors provided some wonderful feedback, but we had a, we had a big argument with Lori Balfour about the, the last section on the Socratic question, because she brought up the point. She was like, Melvin, Chip, there's a paradox here. You're saying that black African-American thinkers are specialists in producing ugly truths, yet this tradition has produced such great beauty, such great beauty in its words, in its poetry, in its music. And so in some ways you're understating the aesthetic appeal and the use of aesthetic appeals 
in the tradition. And we had a good back and forth about that. And I think there's tr- there are truths to both claims. Um, but I, but what it, the important thing is that um, that portion of the introduction and then Lori Balfour's chapter 24 and Toni Morrison, and it, it opens up a space for us to consider what's a relationship between ugliness and beauty in the apprehension of truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is a fascinating and really useful way to think about not only this particular compilation of, of text, but so much of what we read and think about in political theory in general, um, that it is often the combination, um, or the tension, um, in that space between the ugliness of what we need to confront and the, the potential beauty that is part of that as well. Um, and so I, I love the introduction because it taught me so much. Um, but one of the points that you both bring up in the introduction or you bring up in the introduction, cause you both wrote it, um, is the, the problem of canoniz- canonization, um, and I, I would just like to have you talk a little bit about how you're trying to negotiate what is it isn't included in the book itself and how we should think about the canon of not only African-American political thought, but political thought in general. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we, we have a very, um, I mean, I think we have a very ambivalent relationship to canon formation. Um, here's the ambivalence. Ambivalence is first off, we know the way in which canon formation has been used in order to exclude and suppress certain voices. We were fully aware of the politics of that. And at the same time, we're also aware of the fact that in our own teaching, um, there are certain books that we teach more than others, but there are certain things that we think are more crucial than others. So if you're teaching a course, that's a survey of black political thought, if you leave out Ralph Ellison, all right. That's tough, but maybe forgivable. And I'm a big Ralph Allison fan. If you leave out W.B. Du Bois, you've got to go back to the start because you've left out uh, something absolutely uh, foundational. And I don't think you can at least understand black political thought in the 20th century without understanding Du Bois. Um, so, uh, so the way that we sort of try to thread this needle is by talking about the way in which the, the, the um, book presents a provisional canon. Because you can't produce a book with 30 chapters on 30 individual thinkers, no matter what sort of protestations you put out there, no matter what sort of apologies or qualifiers you put out there, you cannot do that without it being interpreted as a canon and treated as a canon in some ways. However, we try to be reflexive in the introduction about this danger, and we also – we – we specifically sort of almost issue a challenge to our readers, you know, here's a provisional canist canon, revise it as you see fit. Um, and our hope, you know, our hope in this volume is that um, our hope is that in 10 years, there are going to be competing volumes. There are going to be competing volumes that argue with our approach that argue with our selection and that this is going to open up a greater conversational space that will mitigate some of the dangers of canon formation, while also um, making arguments saying that actually Anna Julie Cooper needs to be elevated more in our consideration of canonical political theory. I think that's spot on, Chip. Um, you know, one of the things that I, 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 I think 
we are often saddled with is a way in which uh, terms are captured um, by those um, who have come to deploy them in insidious ways. And one, in one sense, you might think, you might say that the very deployment of canon discourse as hermetically sealed um, is precisely what leads to the exclusion of these kinds of figures and thus the need by us to sort of put this book uh, together. But I think there's a way in which, you know, I'm a pragmatist, so I believe in reconstruction. So I think there's a way in which we can capture terms, right, render them as uh, hermeneutically open um, uh, and see canon as a conversation, which is what Ship is saying, as a conversation across time. And this is why this indefinite article is so very, very important. Because we mean for the book to be an invitation, right, to open up space for a longer and extended conversation under what has counted as kind of the traditional purview of, of, of what we call what we call political political theory, right? Um, and, and of course, in that context, look, we will find ourselves saying, as Chip just said, look. You teach a course on African-American political thought and Du Bois is missing, I'm going to look at you uh, sideways and say, wait a second, I, well, I think we're going to have to rethink some things. Um, um, and, and, and maybe we have to go back to the start to figure out what, what you take this tradition uh, to be about. But to say that, right, is not yet to say that there is no more to be said about who else belongs to this story, right? Um, and so we're not in the business of closing, uh, of sort of, of sort of closing down things. We're in the business. This is so. This book is not meant to be a conversation stopper. It's meant to start it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So it is in no way part participating in cancel culture. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> which seems to be a topic of <laughs> debate at the moment. <laughs> it is the opposite of that. Um, I wanted I wanted to bring you both back to one of the sort of streams within the introduction that you touched on, but but didn't really sort of unpack a bit, and and in part because this is something that I myself am oft, often fascinated by in terms of the reconfiguration of American political thought. Um, Jack, you talked about how this book geographically maps on to sort of North American or Atlantic um, thinking. But I, you know, again, it's this, the side, the sort of moving off into a silo political thought by particular groups of people, as opposed to putting it into the midst of that conversation. Can you talk a bit about how this book titled as it is African-American political thought is in fact American political thought. Yeah, that's that's uh, one of my favorite subjects to discuss in in uh, my teaching and scholarship. 
And, um, and I think that in terms of, and I think the way in which Melvin and I, I think in some ways our intellectual genesis is important here because, you know, again, we were taught by a scholar named Jeff Ferguson in Amherst College. We've dedicated the book to his memory. Um, Jeffrey Ferguson, um, he wrote the chapter on George Schuyler. It's an absolute brilliant performance um, by Ferguson and, and a very important intervention uh, on the question of Schuyler's importance to the history of this tradition. Um, he finished the chapter, uh, but but ultimately he, he died in 2018 um, of terminal cancer. And um, so we have his, his chapter in the volume, but we've also dedicated the book to him. Um, and Jeff comes out of what he called the Huggenoid School of African-American history, which says that um, African-American history is American history and that you cannot understand what the project of American has been without understanding black perspectives on it and black contributions to it. And this was a very innovative position in the 1980s when Huggins was making it. And, um, and today, even though it's some, it's been absorbed somewhat into common sense, it's still also a controversial position. Uh, some folks think that it's actually, it, it's too committed to the national frame. Um, we, when we say, when we focus on African-American political thought, as opposed to say black political thought, we're focusing on a line of thinkers who, um, who's, anti-racist thinking is very much entangled with idioms, distinctively you United States idioms, including the Declaration of Independence, including the discourse of self-help, um, including uh, the discourse of individualism. And, uh, and so when we say, you know, African-American political thought, we're not trying to fold black thinking into American political thought. Rather, what we're observing is the way in which Black political thinkers in North America, so much of their vocabulary is entangled, for better or for worse, with the U.S. national project. Um, but part of what we're saying also in the introduction is that when you study African-American political thought, your entire understanding of the U.S. national project will change. What would be an example of this? Well, we often think of you know freedom in Lockean terms. Um, and we can even find echoes of Lockean understandings of freedom in uh, the African-American tradition. Um, but also you get distinct conceptualizations of freedom, such as Angela Davis's, as expounded by Neil Roberts in chapter 28, checking my chapter numbers here, chapter 28. Uh, whereas Locke sort of conceives of us as um, born into a state of nature, a state of perfect freedom and equality, Angela says, no, the basic human condition is one of being captured. Our basic human condition is one of unfreedom. And the meaning of human activity is a flight from unfreedom to freedom and a fugitive act of what Roberts calls marinage. Those who are born into freedom are in a passive state of privilege. And it's decadent and they're weaker because of it. And so this theory of freedom, um, we're saying it's, 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 yes, it's instinctively black theory of freedom in, in Davis's thought, but it is also an American idea and it should be treated as such in our study of the history of the United States. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, you know, there are certain kinds of questions 
um, questions, for example, about the sort of uh, foundation and scope of a political society, what renders it legitimate, what criteria must be satisfied for legitimacy, um, questions about um, um, the status of uh, founders in the construction of a political society, issues around um, the origins of, of, of rights. All of these questions are quite important. Um, we can tell a kind of Euro-American story uh, about those questions uh, and the answers to them. But, 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 but sometimes those questions, uh, though although important, sort of leave out um, uh, um, the sort of different, um, uh, uh, the sort of different philosophical reflections that emerge from uh, Black thinkers given their positionality. So the question of the meaning of the good life under um, uh, oppressive conditions uh, disappears altogether. Another thing that sort of disappears altogether are the ways in which the status of uh, the enslavement of Black people. Um, uh, uh, sort of to go back to this, the issue of freedom, sort of transforms how we think about or how we should understand freedom and how we should understand uh, what needs to be satisfied in order to meet the demand of freedom, right? Um, you know, Phyllis Wheatley, the first chapter um, uh, is on Phyllis Wheatley, uh, and, and Phyllis Wheatley, um, uh, 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 in very sort of subtle ways, uh, was taken aback by... Um, how the Americans took themselves to be enslaved under British rule. I mean, for her, it was a metaphorical unfreedom, but it most certainly wasn't the unfreedom of those that looked like her. And of course, this preoccupation with genuine unfreedom, sort of the real experiences of domination, right? These would This would be the theme that would motivate a great many of these thinkers, but most certainly someone like a David Walker, uh, most certainly someone like uh, Martin Delaney, that chapter written by uh, Robert Gooden Williams, and, and most certainly someone like Frederick Douglass, that chapter written by um, uh, Sharon, uh, Sharon Krause. Um, Krause's uh, chapter is five and Gooden Williams chapter on Martin Delaney is chapter three. And one of the things that you come to realize uh, when, just when you, you know, when you pay careful attention to them is that for them, uh, the experience of domination is not the kind of thing that is simply corrected by the reconfiguration of one's institutional relationship. The argument of the, the right, the, the colonists vis-a-vis the British crown, right? We have to divorce and forge ourselves into our own sort of uh, sort of national identity that is expressed in institutional form. Um, for these thinkers, uh, for, for a great many of them, it involves a radical transformation in terms of how Black people are viewed to begin with, how they appear in the eyes of their fellows. Now, they're not all in, a, they're not all in agreement, right? I mean, as you will see when you read the chapter on Martin Delaney, Martin Delaney is an extraordinary figure. When you read that chapter, you come to realize Martin Delaney actually did not think uh, uh, that his white counterparts were up to the task and being in sort of being transformed at the very core in just this way. Um, David, David Walker, Frederick Douglass, David Walker most certainly thinks that it's a possibility. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, is more committed that this can that this can happen, but this requires a radical um, reconfiguration of how we understand our relationship to each other, and that extends beyond the boundaries of institutional configuration. Although that must be involved, 
right? And this and this addition, it seems to me, uh, goes goes far beyond what um, uh, 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 sort of uh, sort of white Americans were saying um, uh, in the United States, and of course their their European uh, counterparts were saying in terms of what would satisfy the conditions of freedom uh, and what would hold off domination. And and again, this is the introduction as well as the many chapters that follow are so rich in so many of these discussions. Um, and I would love to talk to you about each chapter, but that would be a, like a day long podcast. And um, I don't think we have the time and I don't think people would listen to it, but I don't know. Um, so I, I, I often ask this question of people who have edited volumes and you have, you know, quite a compilation here of the research that most surprised you um, as the chapters are rolling in and you had these two conferences where people also presented some of their work. I'm wondering what ideas were presented by authors that you found surprising or exciting, having not thought of things in a particular perspective. Um, Either of you are welcome to start. Yeah, so I think that the... um... Um, you know the, the chapters that I just identified on uh, uh, freedom and domination, which which of course is in the Republican tradition. Uh, those chapters are quite um, they fit together very uh, tightly, um, and suggest that there's something like a story out there about black uh, um, black or African American republicanism. Um, and of course, it's out there at a time where in this period it is thought to be the case that republicanism has pretty much been eclipsed. Um, by the sort of full-throated story of uh, of liberalism, so that th- th- that um, to 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 me is is quite refreshing, and and it's a rich site to continue to investigate. And I suppose the the more I think about this, um, I suppose um, the chapter on um, the chapter on Ida B. Wells, having read Ida B. Wells a great deal, I, I think um, this sort of sort of seeing Ida B. Wells as um, uh, preoccupied with um, the criminalization of blackness, right? If you think about it as a kind of, as a, as an early forerunner to um, the sort of condemnation of blackness, right? The, right. Um, I mean, I, I, I thought that sort of take, that sort of angle on her, uh, on Ida B. Wells, that is, by Naomi Maracal, was is quite rich and quite um, generative. Um, so, so, so that was a chapter. I mean, I enjoyed all of these chapters, but that 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 was a chapter that uh, um, so, sort of caught me in a way that I wasn't really that caught me in a way that I wasn't anticipating. Jack. Yeah, I mean, a couple of examples. One, I mean, Chapter Seven, Desmond. Jack Mohan's chapter on Booker T. Washington and the politics of uh, deception. Um, there have been, Washington has been called Machiavellian, you know, I mean, since Washington's time. Um, however, I don't think I've, I've seen the Machiavellian interpretation of Walker, of, of, of Washington made with uh, such force and sophistication and detail as in uh, Jack Mohan's chapter, which is which is a prelude to a forthcoming book that he has um, on Washington as a Machiavellian figure. And so that one, uh, that, that chapter really made me, it, it, it made me sit up straight. Um, 
the other one I would say would sort of single out uh, chapter eight on Anna Julia Cooper. I don't want to say it surprised me, it, it, but it transformed me. Um, it's a chapter called by Caroline White. Uh, the subtitle of the chapter is Radical Relationality and the Ethics of Interdependence. Um, and it's a chapter where White provides an account of the relationality of human beings and sees and articulates how Cooper's conceptions of um, equality, freedom, and the self are situated and nested within this vision of human relationality. And though similar arguments have been made, um, it's been made, it's made with exquisite power in, um, in Wayne's, uh, Carol Wayne White's chapter. The other thing I'll say, one thing that's, I think it's sort of interesting about doing a volume like this is that as you know, you're editing other pieces, you're writing your own. And, um, as I was editing Carol Wayne White's piece on radical relationality and the ethics of inter- interdependence, I was, I was really grappling with. Audre Lorde's Politics of Difference in Chapter 25. And when reading um, when, re- when reading Carol Wayne White's chapter, it became clear to me that pol- Lorde's Politics of Difference is actually also best understood within a account of relationality and as nested within an account, account mainly of relational equality. And so... Um, I will say that, you know, White's chapter, uh, you know, not only sort of affected in some ways transforms my own interpretation of Lord in chapter 25, but it's also sort of transforming my, my interpretation of a number of different political thinkers going forward. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, again, there are so many rich chapters in this, this volume that I recommend it to anybody who has any interest in political thought in general. Um, so I, this was a, a 10 year undertaking. <laughs> um, and, um, and as I, I understand from the two of you, it, it wasn't necessarily always simple. Um, so my, my final concluding question is what are you each or together working on now? So I, I, um, I'm at the tail end of a book on African-American political thought, um, The Dark and Light of Faith, um, which, which really is a, is a story about race and freedom in African-American political thought. Uh, and it runs from the 1830s, uh, beginning with David Walker, and it concludes um, with uh, uh, James Baldwin, with a whole host of, of figures in between, Mariah Stewart and uh, um, and Angela Cooper and Ida B. Wells, and um, there's some Billie Holiday in there. So, uh, so that's what I'm working on. Uh, that's what I'm trying to finish up. And I'm in the middle of a book on um, Walt Whitman's philosophy of death, and um, and there, there, the African American political thought um, plays some key roles in it, especially some of the thinking of James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. Because uh, although I, I think I, I'm pr- providing, I think, a, um, a very uh, interpretively generous reconstruction of Whitman's philosophy of death, I'm also exploring some of the complex ways in which in the 1870s uh, he comes to associate death with blackness and, um, and uh, even comes to believe that uh, U.S. nationhood um, is going to involve the extinction of black populations. And so uh, the 
the book, you know, it's an American political thought, but it's very much uh, influenced and framed by a number of the themes that you'll find in, in thinkers such as James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. Well, I hope that each of you will come and speak with me about these books as they are published. I'd love to talk to you separately. <laughs> um, and when your next combined project comes out, whatever it may be, um, I'm happy to talk to you about that as well. Um, and so I wanted to thank Melvin Rogers and Jack Turner for joining me today on the New Books in Political Science podcast to talk about African-American Political Thought, a Collected History, published by University of Chicago Press, I believe, in February of 2021, corresponding with Black History Month this past year. Um, and I assume one can buy it at the University of Chicago Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online outlet that you would like to give a shout out to in our days of COVID? Well, I'd love to give a shout out to the University Bookstore uh, on University of Avenue in Seattle, Washington. All right. And Melvin, anyone for you? Or we'll just send people to the University of Chicago Press website. Yeah, I mean, just go to the website. Um, um, that, that'll do. Uh, so thank you both for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about this amazing, amazing book. Thank you, Lily. Thank you.